Testing one, two. Please be seated. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter one. This opening chapter of Ephesians has been called a celebration of redemption. The opening chapter of Ephesians includes all the members of the Trinity in this celebration of redemption. The Father chooses or elects. Our election includes manifold spiritual blessings like adoption. The Son redeems us in the passage before us this morning. He buys us. He provides forgiveness. The Spirit seals us and assures us, which we will see in the verses next week. The full focus of the Trinity's saving effort comes on display in these chapters, this first chapter in particular, all for God's glory and praise. The Father is the focus in verses 3 through 6, and now we come to verses 7 through 10. But for context, we'll go back to verse 3. I will read verse 3 to verse 10 of Ephesians 1, with our particular focus this morning being on 7 through 10. This is God's holy word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he has chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are reading about some of your most praiseworthy works in these opening verses of Ephesians. Phrases like, to the praise of your glorious grace, and the riches of your grace, and how you lavish your grace upon us in Christ. These Phrases lift our spirits and give us assurance. By the ministry of your Holy Spirit, please give us clarity about what your word has to say and cause us to grow in Christ's likeness as a result. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This is a very special day indeed. We are meeting together in person again for the first time, at least a portion of the congregation. So that's the most important feature of this day. Eight weeks is a long time without being in the same area for worship with your church family. Personally, this is a special Sunday for Sherry and I every Mother's Day of every year, every Sunday that Mother's Day occurs on. Our first Sunday at Redeemer was May 11th, 1997, 23 years ago today, essentially. In that room, Uh, up at the south building that was the sanctuary where the office and the Geneva room are now. And there's a tree out there that I look at all the time that I just kind of laugh about how the years go by and how things happen. I cut that tree down to the stump 
1997, that summer during a deacon's workday. That tree's massive now. It's massive. It's the big cottonwood tree near the playground. Lots of memories here. In these 23 years, we've come to love this place and more importantly, love the people that make up this church, you here. Watching Lee Summit start to take root on its own and grow to be their own church, that brings back wonderful memories of those early days here at Redeemer. You know, one of the things that I've appreciated greatly about our church, something that was uh, gifted to that early group, the founding pastor naming the church Redeemer. You know, there are many good names for churches, but I'm so glad the founding pastor and the original members agreed on Redeemer for the name of this church. By naming the church Redeemer, people are prompted to contemplate the redeeming work of Christ when they think of the name of the church. There's no escaping what it says about Christ to call a church Redeemer. Now, you could call a church Good Shepherd Presbyterian. That's a good name, referring to Jesus' protecting of his sheep. You could call a church Grace Presbyterian. That's a popular one because God is so gracious, and that's true. He's the God of grace. You could call a church Cornerstone Presbyterian because Jesus is the chief cornerstone. Good namesakes, no question. You could call a church Faith Presbyterian Church because we are saved through faith in Christ. Or we have to have faith. But all of those church names could be generalized or humanized, even secularized. But Redeemer, Redeemer reminds us that Jesus paid a price for us to redeem us, to ransom us. Redeemer necessarily confronts us with Jesus' primary work of redemption and forgiveness through his blood. Verse 7 of Ephesians 1. In him, Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. The observations of James Boyce about this passage reminded me of some memorable words from B.B. Warfield on the title Redeemer for Christ. Warfield was the president of Princeton in the late 1800s when that institution was one of the strongest reformed and evangelical voices in the world. At the beginning of every new school year, Warfield gave a sermon, a sermon speech to the new students who were just coming in. In one year, he said, there is no one of the titles of Christ which is more precious to Christian hearts than Redeemer. Now, why would Warfield say such a thing? Well, he explains. This is because Redeemer is the name specifically of the Christ of the cross. Whenever we pronounce it, the cross is bannered before our eyes and our hearts are filled with loving remembrance, not only that Christ has given us salvation, but that he paid a mighty price for it. In these verses, verses 7 through 10 of Ephesians 1, we will see how we are redeemed by Christ. And we are redeemed according to the vast storehouse of God's grace. And finally, it culminates in the last couple verses of our section. Redemption is much bigger than just our personal salvation or the salvation of the church. There is a cosmic redemption 
that is coming, that is part of the plan of God, and he involves us in this plan. First, look at the passage with me. We see in verse 7, the first two-thirds of verse 7, we are redeemed by Christ. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Now please note the two synonymous phrases to begin verse 7. We have redemption and forgiveness. Redemption and forgiveness because of Christ's blood. Redemption and forgiveness are put on equal terms here. We receive both because of Jesus' sacrifice. First, think of the concept of redemption because we have redemption through Christ's blood. To be redeemed means that we are delivered because a payment has been made for us. Redemption by payment was firmly fixed in the minds of the ancients, especially the original audience who would have first read Ephesians. Redeem or redemption, these are terms associated most typically in the context of its writing with slave trade. Slaves in Rome consisted of a sizable portion of the population and they were involved in all levels of work. At the height of the Roman Empire, historians tell us that it is estimated nearly 40% of the population consisted of slaves. It's also estimated in the whole of the Roman Empire, there were between 10 and 18 million slaves. According to the first century B.C. Greek historian Dionysius, the institution of Roman slavery began with the founding of Rome itself when the legendary founder Romulus allowed the fathers of Rome to sell their children into slavery. So slavery was an established institution at the time of Paul's writing Ephesians. The Republic, then the Empire. The oldest legal code of Rome, the Twelve Tables, make reference to slavery, indicating it as a long-standing institution and gave all sorts of ways in which a slave could get out of slavery. There was a way to escape slavery in the Roman Empire. You could redeem yourself by a lifelong lifelong payment, but the most common way, the most realistic way for someone to come out of slavery is for someone else to redeem you out of it, for someone else to pay a price that you couldn't pay or afford so that you could be free. That's the backdrop for the words Paul uses to describe what Jesus does for us. Redemption means paying a price for freedom. And in our case, we're slaves to the devil. We're slaves to our own sin. And we are slaves under the just wrath of God for our sins. We cannot escape God's judgment, so we're enslaved to that as well. We can't buy our way out. But Paul says in verse 7, In him, Christ, we have redemption through his blood. Christ's blood, his death, pays for our redemption. It ransoms us out of slavery It buys us out. It frees us from our slavery. And this is not a concept that is relegated to just Paul's description of what Jesus does for us. Peter says similarly in 1 Peter 1, verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. So the payment rendered is the blood of Christ to redeem us from our slavery, from our sin. 
Jesus says about himself in Mark chapter 10. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Paul writing to the Colossians, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And when he wrote to Titus, the pastor in Crete, Paul said of Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We are redeemed by Christ. Now bringing another level to this concept of redemption is a synonymous phrase. Look at the second part of verse 7. For the forgiveness of our trespasses. It puts it on the same line, same equality with redemption through his blood. We also receive forgiveness of our trespasses through his blood. To be forgiven means that God, who was offended rightly, is no longer holding that offense against us. More personally, God is no longer angry with us. We are forgiven because of Christ's blood. What is forgiven? Our trespasses. There are many words in Scripture for sin or iniquity. Trespass is one such word. We use the version of the Lord's Prayer where we ask God to forgive us our debts. Um, Some who grew up in other uh, traditions would have grown up saying, forgive us our trespasses or forgive our trespasses. And for those who trespass against us. It's a word synonymous with sin or iniquity or wrongdoing. If you trespass in a property that you're not supposed to, it says no trespassing. You are crossing a line you're not allowed to cross. Jesus gives himself for the forgiveness of our trespasses against God. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of of our trespasses. Why has God done this work of redemption? We see it declared, but why would he do such a thing? Why did Christ do this redeeming and forgiving? Where does this work of God's salvation through Christ come from? What originates this? What motivates God to save sinners? Well, the last part of verse 7 and then into verse 8 answers this question, why did Christ redeem us? For the forgiveness of our trespasses, verse 7, then the last part of the verse, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. I was at a store when one of my children was much, much younger. He had just gotten a couple dollars, probably from his grandparents, crumpled up in his pocket, two dollars, and he wanted to go to the store to buy something, and I was there to buy some things as well. I got to the register, and he had his little pack of gum or whatever it is he bought, probably a couple suckers, ready to spend everything he had, the two bucks. And I had a whole bunch of other stuff, and I realized I'd forgotten my wallet. Well, my son looked up at me and gave me his two crumpled dollar bills and said, here, you can buy it with this. It wasn't near enough to pay for it, and he had no more money in his pocket than that. It was cute. I appreciated it. But it wasn't enough. He wanted to help, but he had nothing to help with. God wants to help, and he has done more than enough to help with. And he has more where that came from. He redeems and he forgives. Verse 7, the last part, according to the riches of his grace. You see, we are redeemed and forgiven 
according to the overflowing storehouse of God's grace through Christ. It's not hard for God to pay this price because it's all provided for in Jesus' work and according to God's graciousness. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. He lavished upon us. We are redeemed and forgiven in accord with how much grace he has to give in Christ. I used to deliver newspapers back in the day when people read hard copied print. Once a week I would go to the huge apartment complexes that I delivered papers in and I would collect for the subscriptions. There was one elderly couple who only got the Sunday paper and when I first started delivering papers it was 85 cents for the Sunday paper. You would hope they would give you a dollar so you at least get 15 cents as a tip. But this couple guarded their money closely. The lady would slowly come to the door and bring her little tiny penny purse and she'd undo the clasps very slowly. She'd reach in and root around for nickels and dimes to come up with the 85 cents, and she would hand me one at a time the 85 cents as though it pained her. Now, it didn't pain the brand-new Cadillac she had in the parking lot, but it pained her to drop those coins into my pocket or into my hands. It reminded me of that scene when Ebenezer Scrooge very reluctantly has to pay Bob Cratchit his measly wage out of his penny purse. Well, God... Related to us, paid us or paid for us out of his vast storehouses of riches of his grace. He poured his redeeming grace upon us in Christ according to his overflowing storehouse of grace. Verse 7, according to the riches of his grace. That's not a picture of a miser carefully rationing from a penny purse. Not only does he have enough grace in Christ to give, He's not stingy with giving it or doling it out. He's not conservative with grace toward us in Christ. According to the riches of his grace, verse 8, which he lavished upon us. To lavish something upon us is to pour it out over us, to overload us with his grace in Christ. Uh, Imagine that we were going to have a food handout this morning, not just the little communion cups. You all brought a nice-sized cereal bowl, a good-sized cereal bowl. And I came through the crowd with a big pot of steaming hot, tasty chili. And I went through with a big ladle, and I poured each of you some of that chili. And it was a big bowl, and it was plenty to warm your stomach and fill you up. And that would be satisfying, and you'd be happy with that as I doled out those various ladles. But that's not how God distributes his grace in Christ to us. It says here, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Instead, picture me pulling a huge trailer that had a kiddie-sized pool filled with chili in it. I would have it pulled up next to you, and you'd hold out your bowl. And I would get a big, clean shovel, and I'd pick up the shovel with some chili in the shovel, and I'd pour it into your bowl. Now, the size of the shovel is bigger than your bowl. You can't even handle all the chili I'm about to give you. And I pour it, and it falls over the sides of the bowl. And you look, and you couldn't even eat it if you could eat it. Your bowl can't even hold as much as I can give you. And before you have a chance to even think of it, I got another shovel, and I'm pouring it into your bowl. That's what it means. 
that we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. It never ends. It doesn't stop. It can't be, it can't be exhausted. And he lavishes it upon us. We are redeemed according to the overflowing storehouse of God's grace, and God won't run out. He's not stingy with his grace. We receive redemption through Christ's finished work according to God's steadfast love. This isn't a rich person giving us a little something. This is the God of the universe pouring something upon us according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Do you read any reluctance in God from this statement? according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us? Do you sense God was carefully rationing his grace, worried there wouldn't be enough to go around? Do you sense hesitance on the part of God to redeem and to forgive in Christ? Because of Christ, God is happy to draw into this, from this massive storehouse of his grace and pour it upon us. Is there grace enough for my sins, you think? Is there grace enough for all my wrong thoughts? Is there grace enough for all my sinful deeds? Is there grace enough for all my terrible words? Is there grace enough for all the vicious things I've done to others? Well, is is God's storehouse of grace big enough? Yes, there's enough grace. The finished work of Christ is plenteous to pay for all of your sins. And the grace of God takes us to a vast storehouse where he is not stingy and he pours it upon us. Redeemed by Christ in verse 7 according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Christ's redemption is personal for us. We should make no mistake about that. It's corporate for us as a church body also. Ephesians focuses on this. But it doesn't end with us, as people or a church. Something far greater and far wider is going on. More than just our personal and corporate redemption in view. There is a cosmic renewal, a restoration of paradise that God will work ultimately in the end. A cosmic renewal is coming because of Christ, and he involves us in this because we are in union with Christ. Look at verse 8, the last part of verse 8 down to verse 10, where we see the work of Christ so far-reaching, so all-encompassing, that it extends beyond us and our sin problem which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Now, this is what he's going to do. Verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. It's not just about the renewal of individual sinners. It's not just about saving a people for himself Total cosmic renewal. The fall of mankind in the garden resulted in a curse for creation that will finally undergo its own redemption one day. From God's wise counsel, all all of this comes. Verse 8, in all wisdom and insight, some have said that he's pouring out his grace in Christ and he's pouring out wisdom and, and insight. That's true in scripture. But the grammar of this is speaking of God's wisdom and insight. Though he knew our sin and our condition, though he knew the ruin of the world because of sin. In his wisdom and insight, he still chooses to apply the work of Christ to it all so that it might be redeemed in its own way, making known to us the mystery of his will, this work of redemption he's doing. We know this because he's revealed 
it to us in Christ and by his word, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Jesus. It's all wrapped up in the person of Christ, this renewal. Verse 10 is a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. This is what we have to look forward to in ultimacy. His gracious, redeeming plan. And the execution of that plan was not unfocused or aimless. It's all with purpose. God's plan for redemption is particular. It's applied to us, to our church, and to the universe. God always works from a place of total perspective. Now, we shouldn't assume this means that every person is saved. We know that's not true. But even in the judgment of those who are not saved, the purposes of God are on display. His justice is on full display. Nobody could argue with God's choice in the matter. It will all be clear. Even the judgment of sinners gives praise to God in his righteousness, in his fairness, and it gives even more reason for the redeemed of the Lord to give him this praise. In all wisdom and insight, there is a definite divine purpose to God's plan of redemption. And that's according to his perspective of time and history. His work of redemption comes from his divine wisdom and insight, according to the good pleasure of his will. The plan for Christ to redeem us is according to God's view of things. Verse 9, we have some insight because he gives it, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. And the key here is Christ, the ultimate end, Christ, the consummation himself. Verse 10 is a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. History is moving toward a glorious goal. One day, all will acknowledge Christ's lordship. The summing totality of the head, Jesus himself, will come. Regeneration of the universe, you might say, or the restoration to paradise lost. Liberation of a creation that groans under the weight of its sin and decay. All of this because of Christ and who he is and the place the Father has given to him. All will acknowledge the headship of Christ and paradise will have been restored. This is why Paul writes to the Colossians. For by him, Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. You know, so far in Ephesians 1, we've just gotten to verse 10. It feels like a nonstop cascade of blessings poured out upon us. And we're only to verse 10. You know, when I was a youngster, I used to love when the Ginsu knife commercial would come on. And secretly, I'd always hoped I could somehow get a set of these knives. If I only had 1999, I thought, the sales guy would be dressed like a samurai warrior and he'd show you the first knife. And the first knife got me. I mean, I would want the first knife just based on everything it did. The knife would cut a piece of meat, then he'd cut a piece of wood, and then he would slice a tomato just perfectly with this thing, all for just 1999. Just when you thought that deal was as good as it could get, such a great all-purpose knife, he'd say, but there's more. And then he would tell you about a set of steak knives that also could cut into any kind of thing. He'd even he'd dent a penny with it. he cut all sorts of stuff with that. And you'd think, 1999 for that Ginsu knife, that main knife, and then the steak knives. And then he'd say, but there's more. And then with the knife, you'd also get pairing knives too, a set of pairing knives. And then... It, 
this one you thought the knife set couldn't get any better, he'd say, I'll throw in a butcher knife too. And you'd think, a butcher knife too? All this for nineteen ninety nine? And then he'd say, and then there's more. And he'd keep adding knives, a, a paring knife, some butter knives, a serrated trimming knife. It started with one knife, knife, knife for nineteen ninety five, and before you knew it, there's 26 knives for the same price. What an incredible deal. But that's not all. There's more. There's more. Ephesians 1. That's what we get in Ephesians 1. We are chosen by God, but that's not all. We are made holy and blameless through Christ, but that's not it. There's more. We are adopted as God's children, established in God's predestination, but there's still more. We are redeemed, we are bought, we are purchased with a payment of Christ's blood, but that's not all. We are forgiven. God is no longer mad at us. We are reconciled to him because of Jesus. We have been begraced, but there's more. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God has heaped his lavish kindness upon us, more than we could take, and he keeps pouring it upon us. But there's more yet. We are part of God's victorious plan for the age to come. All of this because of Christ. Who could possibly imagine any more blessings than what we have read? But there's more next week when we get to verse 11. Let's pray. Lord God, it has been said that Ephesians 1 is the most comprehensive statement of the Christian religion in the New Testament. Here we have seen the Father's choice to adopt the Son's work of redemption and forgiveness and our reception of every spiritual blessing because of his great work on our behalf. And we're only 10 verses in. Lord, please cause us to delight in worshiping you. Help us to be eager to follow our Savior's commands. Give us eyes to see the heaping mounds of grace that you have poured upon us in Christ so that we may give you all the praise that you deserve. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.